Hello and welcome once again to Wrestling Memories. I'm your host, Glenn Broggett, with you once again to talk old school professional wrestling. And we've got a great guest. Uh, he's back again. Yes, we've welcomed him uh, two previous times and had a good time chatting with him. And he's got a couple of uh, interesting uh, projects he wants to uh, talk with and I want to talk with him about. Uh, he's uh, done some really good work. Uh, if you've checked out some of his uh, previous books or if you haven't, we'll, we'll let you know about uh, Louisville's Greatest Show and the Bluegrass Brawlers and other books uh, that feature our guest today. A new book as well that you uh, might want. It's uh, kind of in a holiday theme. It's always good. It's always fun to welcome pro wrestling author and historian John Cosper to the program. John, it didn't seem like too long ago that uh, we were talking about your uh, the book that you had out previously. Uh, it was a really I really enjoyed it called Louisville, Louisville's Greatest Show. But now you have not one but two projects. Well, we got, you got one that just came out, and another one we're going to talk about involving Dr. D. David Schultz. John Cosper, welcome to Wrestling Memories. It's always a uh, uh, good to have you on the show, my friend. Hey, Glenn, it's glad to be back, and it's always a pleasure to be talking with you as well. Yes, yes, and like I said, I really uh, tremendously enjoy Louisville's, Louisville's Greatest Show, but I want to talk first of all about this book that uh, just came out. It's a fun little picture book that uh, you, you've uh, released called Seasons Beatings, Christmas Wishes from the Golden Age of Wrestling. And now, not only is the book just a, a, a fun little look back, a little timepiece uh, through the holiday season of uh, yesterday's uh, professional wrestling, but I want to talk about the content of the, little bo- of the book also, and I want to find out first and foremost how you uh, were able to get these, these photos that comprise uh, what is the book Seasons Beatings, Christmas Wishes from the Golden Age of Wrestling. So let's get into the story behind the story of, of this uh, book release? Well, the story behind the story goes back to when I was working on the first book that I did, Bluegrass Brawlers, which is the story of professional wrestling in Louisville. Um, that book covered Louisville wrestling history going all the way back to 1880, all the way up to the present day. Um, and one name that stuck out at me that, that kind of became one of my, you know, one of my fascinations was a guy by the name of Jim Mitchell, uh, who worked as the, under the name the Black Panther. Uh, Mitchell is a native of Louisville, Kentucky. He was born... Uh, depending on, on, on what you believe, whether you believe the documents you know, that, that he filled out throughout his life or, or, or the headstone that, that marks his grave, somewhere between 1908 and 1910. Uh, he started wrestling at a very early age, most likely the late 1920s. Um, he was an avid, uh, very athletic guy, um, an avid bicyclist. He, would, he claims in the early years he was riding his bike to shows uh, from Louisville to Indianapolis to Columbus and, and other points around the Midwest. Um, he ended up becoming a pretty big star and, uh, actually in California had a very, very notable feud with gorgeous George that actually incited a riot back in 1949. Um, he ended up uh, retiring to Toledo, Ohio, where he opened a liquor store called the Black Panthers Carryout. Um, and, uh, you know, some of his old buddies would drop in to visit with him. And, um, I've talked to Flying Fred Curry and I've talked to Dr. Jerry Graham Jr. who went in there with their mentors back in the day and they go sit in the back room and, and, uh, you know, the Black Panther would, would sit and talk with Bill Curry, with Martino Angelo, some of the stories from well, way back in the 1930s and 40s. Um, this was been a fascination of mine. I've wanted to tell the story, and, and I posted a number of things on my website, eatsleepwrestle.com, about him over the years. And just this past summer, actually the day my family and I are getting ready to head out on vacation, I get an email from a guy who says, hey, a friend of mine bought Jim Mitchell's house here in Toledo. You need to talk to him. So he got me in touch with the guy. Uh, it turns out back in 2003, right after Mitchell's widow had passed away, uh, this guy was at breakfast with his girlfriend, overheard a couple ladies talking about a house for sale in the old historic mansion district in Toledo. He went, walked around the house, made an offer of $11,000 on the house, bought it, intending to flip it, which he had done. He had done 20 houses. This is the 21st. And it turned out to be the last one he ever did. Um, had no idea whose house it was or, you know, anything about it. You know, he bought the house, lock, stock, and barrel, everything that was in it. And as he was going room to room working on this house, he started finding wrestling programs. He found wrestling boots. He found suitcases that have visuals initials in them. Um, he found you know, the wrestling licenses, programs, um, photos, memorabilia, letters. There were letters from Sam Muchnick and Paul Bowser and Morris Siegel. 
um, and, and other figures from, from around, you know, pro wrestling at that time. Um, Mitchell was known to have collected smoking pipes from around the world uh, during his travels, and he had uh, other wrestlers and, and fans would, would send him pipes from different places. He collected thousands of them. He found the entire pipe collection. Um, so I, I hooked up with a guy back in September. I went up and visited with him in Toledo. Uh, got to see the pipe collection. Got to see the suitcases. Went through all kinds of documents and photos. Um, took a lot of pictures. Scanned a lot of things while I was there. I ended up bringing about four boxes worth of stuff home with me. Um, and I've been selling this stuff on eBay on behalf of the guy. But, you know, the, the, the nice thing for me is I've been able to go through and scan and photograph everything um, with the intent of one day being able to really tell this guy's story and, and kind of put, put together a book or something about it um, so people can know who Jim Mitchell was and how important he was in pro wrestling history. Um, but uh, long story short, one of the programs that I came across was it was a Pacific Athletic News uh, program, uh, which is a Southern California program that, that was distributed at a couple different places. Uh, Hardy Crest Camp was the publisher. Jimmy Lennon, who was the, uh, the ring announcer out in L.A. for a long time, uh, was one of the columnists. But they had a Christmas edition that they put out. And in this particular uh, program, um, it was a double-length program. There were normally eight pages. This one was about 16. There were all these little, you know, they, they looked like the ads that people would take out of programs, but it was little Christmas wishes from everybody who was working in Southern California, plus some other notable figures from, from around the country. Uh, we're talking Ed Stringler-Lewis was in there, Ed Don George, uh, Morris Eagle, the Houston promoter, uh, Gorgeous George, uh, Jim Mitchell, of course, Yvonne Robert from Montreal, uh, a number of different names. And as I was flipping through that particular program, I thought that this is a really neat little piece of history. And, and the idea occurred to me to go through, um, to scan all of these different little ads and programs and basically just put it together, like you said, in a picture book, um, which is really what Season Beatings is. Um, there's really no story to it. There's, there's no background to, to who these guys were or anything like that. Uh, I put a little introduction at the beginning, but just kind of give them a little bit of the backstory story as to how I came across these and everything, and um, a little bit of info about Pacific Athletic News, which I really didn't know anything about. There's really nothing that's been written about it, apparently, online that I can find, but um, really what it is, is it's a, just a time capsule of December 1947. Um, all these photos of the different wrestlers, the stars that the Southern California fans would have known, um, and just kind of all, all put together in a little thing, you know, season's greetings from, from this guy, from that guy. Um, you know, the ones that I mentioned, Mike Mazurki was another one. Um, there's there's about 49 of them all in in, in the book. And it's, it's a really neat little piece of history. And, and just, just a look back at who some of the stars were back in the day. Mm-hmm. Oh, what kind of condition was uh, some of the content? Like you said, you carried out four boxes of, of stuff out of this, this house that was intended to be a flip by a friend of yours because it seemed like he it was a, a house that was pretty much uh, ready to just be uh, knocked over and put up anew or else just get a new, more than just a new coat of paint on it. But what, what kind of condition was uh, were, were some of the pieces? Uh, I mean, you mentioned a pipe collection of all things, but uh, what sort of shape, shape did you find some of this stuff? A lot of it's in really rough shape. Some of the photos show a lot of age. Uh, there, there's some water damage. There were, you know, there, you know, um, a lot of stuff had been sitting in the bottom of the basement for a number of years. Um, according to the guy that that, that owns all of this stuff and, and found everything, um, he probably threw away half to two-thirds as much as what he actually had. And, and when I went up to visit him, he had a living room full of stuff. Um, so I, it really is a kind of varying condition. Um, all of the boots are very dusty and dirty. Um, I t- took them all home and, and, and polished them, they cleaned them off and then polished them up. Um, they, they really polished up nicely. They came out beautifully. Um, and, and some of the posters are, are kind of in ripped up shape and they're, they're kind of torn and frayed around the edges. A lot of the programs, some were in, in decent shape, some of them were not, um, but I mean, everything that I went through, everything that, that I got to take a look at, there was, there was just something, some new discovery every day going through these, these different items. And um, like I said, the condition kind of varied. I mean, some of the stuff is, you know, 60, 70, 80 years old. Uh, I've got a photo of the Black Panther. It's probably from the early 1930s. It's probably one of the oldest photos, you know, that taken of him. And it's certainly the oldest one that I've seen. Um, of him in wrestling gear. Um, and it's in pretty rough shape, but still, it's a really, really neat look back at, at you know, this lost history and, and the guy who really, you know, broke a lot of barriers even before Bobo Brazil came along and, and became the guy who's largely credited with breaking the color barrier. Mm-hmm. 
You talked about this pipe collection. Now, you said there was pipes from all around the world. Now, what, what, what were some of the more interesting pipes that you saw when you were looking through those? I, I'm curious, as you, you mentioned a pipe collection. I, I take it there was some very interesting little intricate things that separated some from, from the other. Yeah, um, it's been a while since I, you know, got to really take a look at it. Like I said, a lot of them are mounted on a big board. Um, they're they're covered in dust, and you know, really need some tender loving care to kind of bring them back to life. But there was everything from, you know, there was a there was a coconut that had a pipe sticking out of his mouth. There were corn cob pipes. There were some very intricately carved wooden pipes with like Indian heads and. Um, you know, different type figures in them. You could tell some of them were from the Far East. You could tell some of them were from Germany. Um, some very elaborate, you know, woodworking on, on some of these different pipes. Uh, some of them do have gold inlaid in them and things like that. Um, it was really too much to really uh, to take in all at once. And, you know, it would have been too much to really try to photograph and, 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 you know, all of this stuff at that time. But um, I'm hoping next time we meet up, I can get a little bit close, closer look at it. Um, our desire is really to try to get somebody to take the entire collection because he is looking for a buyer on it. Um, if the collection was valued at twenty-five thousand dollars back in nineteen sixty-two, according to some of the magazines and some of the articles that I found um, in Jim Mitchell's collection, some of the, uh, some of the things that he had collected and saved, um, they're kind of in dusty shape. And I mean, really, it's it, it's it, you know, I've talked to some pipe collectors, and they, they you know, have, have kind of you know shaking their head at it. It's, just, it's a lot of old dusty pipes and it'd be a lot of work for somebody, you know, but uh, I mean, there's, there's bound to be some gold in there. There's bound to be some, some really unique finds, you know, within this for someone who's, who's interested in pipe collecting specifically. But, um, you know, it, it was just, for me, it was just a neat thing to, you know, to have read about this. I and mean, it was an article, I think an interview that he gave to a newspaper in California where I first discovered this, you know, uh, online on newspapers.com, uh, but then just to see it all actually in person and, and to, you know, to hold some of that history was, was pretty amazing. Yeah, and we talked a little bit about the importance as far as researching has been for you uh, now with this, uh, with these newspapers and newspapers.com and uh, how important that site is just because it, it, it is such a great source and, and it seems like you're, you've been able to glean some good information uh, just by way of this and it has really become a real important tool as we try to track down more of the history that, you know, sometimes it just gets lost some of it during through the years and through the through the passages of time, but it's great to have those little services out there. It definitely is. I mean, like I said, when I work with Bluegrass Brawlers, I was going to the public library in downtown Louisville and I was scrolling through microfilms, and you know, which which took forever to go through. And um, I mean, some of them were in really rough shape, and it was it was really you know the, the question occurred to me: you know, how much longer is this resource going to be available? But you know, the entire Courier Journal is now available online. There are other newspapers online. I know a lot of other guys that are researching you know different parts of the country, different cities, and uh, going through different newspapers, really trying to to preserve this history and and, and to go through the, the main newspaper archives and glean out what we can about this, you know, the golden age when, when pro wrestling was treated like a legitimate sport in a lot of places. Um, uh, and, and try, try to pre- preserve these stories. And um, what's been really neat for me is is when I get an email from someone who says, hey, my grandfather wrestled in this area. Do you have come across this particular name? Or my, my grandfather was a promoter. Or, uh, we think my grandfather did this or that. You know, could you find anything? And um, to be able to say, you know, I can, you know, rather than having to go through newspapers.com now, I can go through the archives that I've got where I've collected all the Louisville results um, from the 30s and 40s um, and just do a name search and come back and tell them, yes, you know, here's your grandfather wrestling here. Here he is doing this. And uh, it's really neat for me to help people to kind of discover, you know, not just the past of, of pro wrestling, but their own family history. Mm-hmm. Now we're going to go, we're going to shift gears. Uh, season's beatings of Christmas wishes from the golden age of wrestling. Now uh, we're going to talk about this at the end of the program again, but let's, what information, uh, as far as where can a person pick up this, uh, this new little book, uh, a little time, I call it the little time capsule piece, uh, season's beatings, Christmas wishes from the golden age of wrestling. They can find it on Amazon.com um, if they want, want a quick link to it. Uh, my website is eatsleepwrestle.com where I've got all of my books posted, and uh, you can get to it from, from that direction as well. Okay, we're going to uh, get back into the conversation because not only were you uh, putting this together and going through more history, putting out these wonderful books, you have been working on a project that has a little more of a modern spin, uh, too, as well as uh, going back further and finding these wonderful treasures of professional wrestling history. And again, this is another thing that we were touching base on when you were uh, back um, a few months back when uh, we were in discussing your last book. Uh, you were saying that you just uh, started work 
on a, a on a book, a long-awaited uh, book, I might add, um, from Doctor D. David Schultz. And uh, from what uh, we could gather was you were you were starting to kind of get the wheels in motion on this project. Now it's been how long since you uh, first started this uh, project, and and where are we at as far as the Doctor D stuff? And I want to talk a little bit about Schultz as well. But where are you at with this this project uh, about Doctor D. David Schultz? Uh, right now, at this point, we are about we are about done with the book. Um, the book cover was was finished up over the weekend, finalized, and Doctor D gave his approval on it. Um, had a phenomenal artist uh, from from Japan who's designed a number of programs and and uh, and T-shirts. Um, I hate to butcher butcher his name. Sei Ozawa uh, is, is his name, and he, he's a phenomenal artist. Um, actually, got to know him through Madman Pondo, uh, who designs all Madman Pondo's T-shirts. And he's going to do Pondo's book cover as well when we get to that. Um, but I, I had him put the put the cover together, and, and uh, like I said, uh, David approved it over the weekend. The text of the book is done. Uh, there's just a few little details, odds and ends we got to finish up. Uh, the foreword is still being written. Um, I would give you the name of who's writing the foreword, but I'd rather keep that under wraps until I've actually got it in hand. Oh man, you're giving me it's some a, you're giving me some sizzle <laughs> here, Cosper. It is it is it is a Hall of Fame name. It is a name everybody's going to know. It's a guy who uh, you know Doctor D took under his wing a little bit when he was younger. Um, meant a lot to him, really, really kind of taught him a lot of things. Um, and, uh, it's, it, it's, it might surprise some people that it's, it, it's, or it's, it, it was a very exciting get when, when he said, yeah, absolutely, whatever David needs, I will do for him. So, um, We've got the cover ready. I'm getting ready to send the text to, the, to my proofreader to, to do the final cleanup and get all of my typos out of it. Uh, we're hoping we'll, it'll be ready to release um, mid, mid to late January, I think, is, is probably most optimistically where we're looking at right now. Uh, the title is Don't Call Me Fake, the real story of Dr. D. David Schultz. Uh, we have set up a Facebook page for it. Um, and just so fans know what, what they're getting into here, uh, we're going to cover, this is this is Dr. D's story. This is his entire life story. Um, we're going to cover his early childhood, growing up in, in you know very rural, very poor area of Tennessee, um, his, you know, his stint in the Army, and then his time, you know, you know training with the legendary Herb Welch, who he says the toughest man he ever knew, um, a man who absolutely just just wore him down as he did all of his students, but uh, really turned Dr. D into, into the kind of wrestler that he became. Um, we're going to cover his, his career, going you know where we worked in Tennessee and Florida, um, his time up in, with Stampede Wrestling in Canada, uh, of course the AWA in Minnesota, and then WWF. Um, he also had a phenomenal run. A lot of people don't know this. After WWF, um, he wrestled the toughest men in the business. Uh, when, when he left the WWF, he was wrestling Stan Hansen, Bruiser Brody, Abdul the Butcher, uh, Ric Flair, Johnny Rods, the Iron Sheik. Um, Antonio Inoki, uh, absolutely the toughest, meanest man in the business, um, you know, one right after the other. Um, and then after that, he spent the next 20-plus years as a bounty hunter, as a professional bounty hunter. Um, and I have to be honest with you, the bounty hunting stories are just as riveting and exciting um, and page-turning as any of his wrestling stories. Um, and really the second half of the book is dedicated to his, his life, you know, working as a baby face in, in the world of the, you know, the justice system and um, tracking down murderers and drug dealers and rapists. And I mean, some of the worst kind of human beings in the world you could imagine um, and chasing them all over the world. I mean, uh, David was more than just a guy that kicked the door down. He was a detective and he was a private investigator. Um, he could kick the door down. He could drag a guy to the ground and, and drag him out to the car and slam the door. Uh, but he could just as easily get a little old granny at the door and sweet talk her and letting him in the door and arresting her grandson and taking him back to jail because it'd be much better for him to take him back to jail than if the police arrive here in a couple hours and what they might do. So, um, David was a smooth operator. He was, he was one of the very best, you know, that there ever was at this particular business. Um, and he's got some incredible stories and, uh, I'll tell you, it's, it's been quite a ride getting to, um, not only hear these stories and discover them for myself, but um, seeing some of the history myself and, and, you know, going through his photos and going through the, the legal documents and the, you know, the papers and uh, the letters that he's collected over the years. And uh, you know, he, he really had a mass quiet collection of memorabilia from his wrestling career um, and his law enforcement career. Uh, so it's, it's going to be quite a book. It's, you know, for, for wrestling fans and um, just, just people who enjoy, you know, a really fascinating story of a man who's lived an incredible life. 
And I think this will be another way to further enhance what this guy was all about and to introduce him to uh, generations of fans who may have uh, just heard the name and connected him with the Stossel incident, but haven't really gotten a chance to really absorb this guy, this man that when you watch his stuff, whether it would be in one of the major territories, you know, back in the day with even with Calgary or the AWA, this was a guy that you can honestly say, if you want to compare a guy, I mean, as far as influences go, this was this was stone cold. Uh, I mean, this was Stone Cold in the Territory Days type of vibe with Dr. D. David Schultz. This was a guy, like you said, he walked it like he talked it. He was a t- he was <laughs> double tough, but he was also a guy that had the, the work on the microphone and in the ring. And it was just really a shame that he almost uh, became some sort of a mainstream martyr for the pro wrestling business, that he wasn't able to, uh, you know, kind of reap more rewards of the business instead of ending up getting out of the business and working. And yes, he had a good career as a bounty hunter, but to think about what more he could have had if he was more embraced by by the uh, the, the mainstream instead of just being the guy that uh, you know slapped Stossel for McMahon. I mean, because some people are going to remember him by that. That's an instant association. So this is a good way to uncover just really what an influence he was, just what a good personality overall in ring, out of ring he was. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, there, there, there's much more to him than the Stossel incident. I mean, um, obviously, we, we we cover that you know particular story in the book and, and how all that went down and everything. But I mean, the words, the phrase that I hear used about him a lot when I see him discussed online or when I've heard him discussed on podcasts uh, was ahead of his time. You know, and as far as being you know very real, very authentic, being that attitude era type you know character, he was attitude era. You know, way back during during the Federation days, during the early days of the W. WWF before WrestleMania, um, he was a he was a loose cannon. You didn't renew what he was going to say. <clears throat> there was a reality to him. He spoke his mind. He, he walked the walk. He talked the talk. Um, he, he, you know, fans can go out on YouTube and you know you can watch the Stoss and if you want. But um, I'll tell you the things to look for. Look look for his appearances on TNT, the Tuesday night. Uh, talk show that Vince McMahon did, uh, the one where he's showing his gun collection to, to Vince McMahon and Lord Alfred Hayes, uh, the one where he's at home with his family, which wasn't actually his family, they were actors, obviously, mm-hmm. but, uh, or he's at home with his family in the log cabin that he built with his own bare hands. Um, um, especially, my favorite promo of all time of his is the one where he's uh, he's got a promo on a, about a wrestling match he's got coming up with Sergeant Slaughter in Cape Cod. Uh, and Mean Gene Okerlund is there with him and tries to interject it and, and uh, Dr. D gives him what for, and ends up breaking Mean Gene up, and the camera zooms in on David, so you can't see that Mean Gene's completely lost it. Um, but he was very funny and very charismatic. Um, and, I mean, really, I mean, he, he was absolutely money, you know. And, uh, you know, for you know, all, there's a myriad of reasons as to why he didn't last longer, why he didn't even make it to WrestleMania 1. Um, but the man was money everywhere he went. And he was, you know, if you're going to have a great baby face, you have to have a great heel. Um the heels are the ones that really sell the tickets because you know you want to see the babyface beat the heel, and uh, there was nobody better at that time on the mic or in the ring than Dr. D. David Schultz. And I can remember too from TNT was it was the studio incident where he, he shoots the the gun or whether it's the blank he, he shoots at something and and Vince yeah, just yeah. jumps up like he jumped up like a cat he was going to go jump on his desk it was just I mean whether it was a full natural reaction or not uh, Vince was just really like jumped in and and really just got into like just disciplinary mode I mean he really must have been kind of even though he probably could have expected it in the back of his mind just initially shocked by that gunshot. Vince is, Vince is a pretty good actor. Well, yeah, yeah, I know, but and, and he, my, my goodness, he, he really played, you know, for, you know, there were, there was definitely some bad blood between the two of them, but Vince, he could have made so much more money off, you know, using David and keeping him around and, you know, putting him in the proper program where he should have been. Um, because those segments are absolutely gold. And, you know, Vince is, you know, putting David over as, as just this dangerous loose cannon, and David plays it to the hilt, you know, or he's showing the guns off. And at one point, you know, there's a comment, is this thing, well, I wouldn't be showing you a loaded gun. And of course, that's right where it, where it goes off. And, um, you know, waving the guns around, you know, the, the, the reaction of Lord Alfred Hayes, too, and his complete nervousness and everything like that. Just a little aside, a little ad libs that, that they did, you know, because it wasn't all scripted back then. It was all done off the cuff. But um, I, he he was as good as they came, and, and, and those promos are absolutely classics even today. And whole and holy uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin comparison because the gun thing predated another incident that wasn't the same sort of thing, but it involved the gun not too long ago on a Monday night program on Raw with Brian Pillman, another man 
who was uh, really uh, very intelligent, sometimes uh, to his own detriment, but his own version of a loose cannon. So we guess we get another Austin connection there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, a lot of those guys really kind of owe that. It's interesting because... Um, uh, I was listening to Stone Cold's podcast not too long ago, and he was discussing, you know, having discovered Dr. D. David Schultz on YouTube himself. And, you know, a lot of people say Stone Cold stole that act from, from Dr. D., but, uh, you know, from, from the sound of it, you know, it was really, you know, he wasn't as, as aware of him back then. And it's really a shame because he's kind of been swept under the rug and, you know, it, uh, you know, almost, it, it, yeah, to a certain point ignored, but, you know, you know, I think the part of the agreement was when he left WWE, because there was a lawsuit with Stossel and, um, that there was a lot of money lost, you know, in, in that particular lawsuit and everything like that. But, you know, part of the agreement was they were never going to use this likeness again. And he wasn't supposed to be there, but, you know, if you pick up any, copy of the WWE encyclopedia, Dr. D. David Schultz is listed in there as, as a, someone who had wrestled for them. If you go on the WWE network, go on to Tuesday night Titans, you can see the entire episode that includes him showing off the gun collection and the gun going off. I want to ask you though, John Cosper, we are speaking with uh, author John Cosper. You can check out his website, eat, sleep, uh, I want to ask about when you met up with, with, with David and you got this idea for the, for the book, what was it like your initial meetings with, with David and uh, your, your initial first impression of him? And, and what was that like uh, the process of getting him to put out his stories? I mean, this was a man who uh, we haven't heard from in a long, long time, who has went and, and lived his, his own life by the by beat of his own drummer. So what was the experience like of, of meeting him and the impression you got from him and then later on getting into uh, the meat of it, telling his story or him telling you his story? Well, when I, met to, when I got to meet him, it was actually just about a year ago. It was in, was in the summer of last year. Uh, this is after a couple of months of us talking by phone and exchanging a few emails. Um, Dr. Bob Brylett actually connected us. He used to be on the board of the uh, Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame. It used to be up in New York. It's now down in Wichita Falls. Um, and, you know, we, we kind of talked back and forth and everything, and he had, a, he had a pretty busy schedule last fall. And, you know, so it took some time for us to be able to meet up. But um, my family and I drove down. We, we stayed in Tennessee at a hotel, and he came up and, and met with me for an afternoon. And um, when he came in, there weren't that many people in the lobby, but he immediately told me that he recognized me from my website. Um, I got to, I got the sense right away that you know in the last couple months you know Dr. D had been vetting me, um, which I mean is 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 what he does. He's he's a very sharp guy. He's he's the kind of guy who would go out. He would track down people that weren't weren't found and um, wanted to know as much about me as as yeah, as he could possibly do. Um, he's a very intelligent guy. He's he's a very you know very honest, very forthright guy. Um, he tells it like it is. He doesn't hold back. Um, and my initial meeting with him, it was it was was really great. You know, we just sat, kind of sat, and I just kind of let him talk. And he he told a lot of the stories that are told in the book. Um, some of the, the different incidents with bounty hunting, in particular, you know, all these stories were stories that I heard the very first day. Uh, we talked about John Stossel. He told me he had you know tried to write a book with a couple of different people over the years. Um, it was more back in the day when you know there wasn't as much access, and it wasn't as easy for someone to independently publish a book. Um, you know, he had has quite a collection of, you know, rejection letters from publishers and things like that. I and mean, things didn't pan out for this reason or that. Um, so he was a little skeptical about trying again to, to tell his story, but, you know, I, I you know, told him, it was like, you know, I'm, I'm going to tell your story the way you want it. And, uh, you know, this is your book and it's, it's going to be your final approval on the book. However, it comes out and you will we'll tell as much of this, tell as much of that as you want. Um, we shook hands on it and, um, uh, you know, one of the other things that really kind of, <laughs> one of my favorite um, things that tells you about just, just how sharp this guy is and, and how, how deeply he does his research, um, as we got into it, you know, he started bringing me, you know, we would meet up, you know, you're halfway or, or he would come up here or I would go down there and uh, we trade boxes and yeah, I, I went through boxes of photos and boxes of legal depositions. I've read all the legal depositions regarding the John Stossel trial and, um, and some other trials as well that, that, that didn't make the book for different reasons. And, um, you know, I read through a lot of the files and, and, you know, as far as, you know, some of the people he tracked down bounty hunting and, you know, going through all this different stuff. Um, but he brought a couple posters up at one point for me and, um, some stuff that he wanted me to keep. And one of the posters is, uh, from the appearance he did at the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame. Uh, the date was October 7th, 2006. And uh, before we had come back to, you know, met met back up to trade papers back and everything, I messaged him and was like, I just want to make sure this is a poster, this is for me to keep, right? He said, yeah, absolutely. Um, I replied back, it's like, it's a cool poster because that 
you know, October 7th, 2006, that's my anniversary. He texted me back and he said, I know. Uh, which I had never discussed with him, you know, when I got married or anything like that. Well, you are, you're dealing with a bounty hunter though. So this uh, could be a man who's very well read. This is part of the occupation. (laughs) So this is like, this is the guy that uh, isn't just, this guy had to, yeah, that was the point. I I knew he'd done research on this. guy had done a lot of research on me. So, um, but that's the kind of guy he is. And, you know, what's neat about, you know, I got to interview a lot of his students. I got to interview some of the bondsmen that he worked with back in the day. Um, I got to talk to a number of different wrestlers about him as well. And, um, to a person, they they are they are so loyal to him. They are so um, the, the admiration for this guy, you know, and who he is, and um, you know, what the people will tell you is, you know, if if David considers you a friend, he is a friend for life. He's the best friend you'll ever have. Um, I feel like I can vouch for that because he's been very good to me. He's been very good to my kids. Um, as as we've gone through this past year, you know, he's always asking, you know, how's Jessica? How are the kids doing? And everything. Um, and twice during during this particular time, you know, he's been going through his old, you know his barn and going through boxes and things like that. Um, I've got packages in the mail for my kids. Uh, they have vintage Road Warrior t-shirts and vintage Sergeant Slaughter t-shirts that he dug up out of his stuff. So jealous right um, there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, these shirts are incredible. So uh, I used to put the Road Warrior shirts on to go meet Sting at an event not too long ago. Hey, it's my old running buddies. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he's, he's, he's a really great guy. He's, he's very honest. He's very forthright. He tells it like it is. Um, if you approach him, honestly, if you're straightforward with him, if you deal straight with him, uh, he's going to deal straight with you. Uh, you know, but he, he does like every now and then to, to kind of play the part, you know, if he goes out to a fan fest or something like that, you know, he's not afraid to put on the Dr. D persona or if somebody rubs him the wrong way, they're, they're going to get the side of the, uh, David, you don't want to run into. So but, yeah. uh, now you were talking about um, some of the, some of the stuff that you got from him and you guys you were trading back and forth. I'm looking here in one of your articles that you wrote was a really, I really enjoyed the piece that you had on, on David, uh, on your website, uh, eat, sleep, wrestle.com. Uh, yeah. You were talking about the legal depositions. There's also available some wrestling programs. You said there's some stampede wrestling programs and a guy that would probably uh, have a, more than a couple of pages in the book for sometimes for better or for worse at its various phases in their relationship uh, we're, we're talking about hulk hogan and there was actually hulk hogan's wedding invitation of course to uh, linda there was available in, as part of this box of uh, memories and archives and stuff that just wow i, I could have been like a kid in a candy store with this stuff uh, I, will, I will never forget that particular moment. Like, I, yeah, I'm down in, in my, my man cave in the basement, and uh, um, yeah, I'm going through one item after another, and I'm looking through, you know, re- reading things and scanning stuff as I go through, and I come across and a very fancy looking envelope addressed to Doctor, you know, not sorry, not Dial, but it was addressed to Mister and Mrs. David Schultz. Uh, I open that up. There's another fancy envelope on the inside. It doesn't dawn on me yet. This is a wedding invitation. Um, but it's obviously what it is. Another fancy envelope on the inside with no writing. I open it up, pull it out, and here it is, the wedding invitation uh, for Terry Bollet and for, for Linda. Um, I go racing upstairs. I hand it to my wife. I was like, do you have any idea what this is? <laughs> and uh, she reads, it's a wedding invitation. I was like, do you know whose wedding invitation it is? And uh, it's like, oh, it's all cooking. So, uh, yeah, that, that was a pretty neat find. Uh, Coming across uh, Hulk Hogan's wedding invitation, amongst everything, um, yeah, that, that, that's that's kind of one of the sadder parts of the story because um, when they met up down in Florida, uh, when when Hulk Hogan was first starting out in Sterling Golden, um, he was sleeping on on David's couch, you know, and staying with him and his wife. Um, his daughter became you know very close with Hulk Hogan and re- really enjoyed him. He played guitar for and sing for and things like that. Um, Obviously, you know, they, their friendship continued when they were in Minnesota. And as soon as Hogan got picked up in New York, he was like, I'm going to let Vince know he's got to bring you up. And, you know, Vince right away was, was eager to bring David in as well. Um, and, and then things just kind of fell apart in New York for, for various reasons. And, um, you know, most, li- most likely it was politics or, 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 you know, what have you. Like you would say, we, we talk about it a little bit in the book as, as to what the reasons were, but um, at one time, they were the very best of friends. They were workout pals. They were travel pals, even though heels and faces weren't supposed to travel. And um, there are some kayfabe Buxton photos in here. And, uh, <coughs> excuse me. It's funny because I recall hearing Jim Cornette, you know, railing about the photos that Braun Strowman and Roman Reigns were taking together on vacation when they were supposed to be in this really heated feud. And mm-hmm. it was, was really just a matter of days after that, that, you know, I'm going through boxes and I find, you know, these 
photos from a Christmas party of Hulk Hogan and, and David Schultz and Mr. Saito. And um, my favorite, one of my favorite photos in the book, the photo of David Schultz backstage at WWF posed not only with Hulk Hogan, but Cindy Lauper in between them. Oh, wow. That was a talk about another time capsule of the, the, the whole exactly. rock and roll exactly. uh, wrestling yep. thing taking off. And yeah, it, it was just one of those things that was just unfortunate that that whole, the escalation that proceeded with uh, the Stossel case really kind of put a detour onto something that he was definitely working on because what they did, him and Hogan, uh, you, know, you know, before, I mean, they had something cooking in the AWA and you throw a Mr. Saito into the mix. You're talking about these uh, kayfabe breaking pitchers, but these guys were lighting it up with these these big time grudge match blood fest and then the next thing you know these guys you know both jumped to to, uh, to new york and instead of it being under the awa auspices you're getting the same match you're not too long after hulkamania sprung out here in 84 with him and dr d going back and main eventing under vince's uh you know expansion plans uh kind of a, a little bit of a kick and a slap to 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 Vern as well now hogan had his thing with Vern. did it did it from what you could you can gather from the book and what you can gather from David was there as, as much heat as you know the way Hogan went out uh, and to when he took off uh, and, and made his own way uh, to New York. Uh, I mean, certainly there was you know David knew that when he gave his notice that uh, that he was he was never going to be able to work in Minnesota again. Um, you know, when, when you when you burn burn, you know that's that, that's it. You're not going to get a second chance and. Um, the way all that went down, um, I'm sure, sure you probably remember this from, from, from when it happened if you were watching AWA, but mm-hmm. um, Hogan had his contract signed, didn't tell Vern he was leaving, um, and uh, you know was not at a particular TV taping, and, and when uh, Schultz went out to, to, make his, uh, to make his promo that night, called Hulk Hogan out, he told him, he's like, Hulk Hogan, I want you to be here next week. If you don't show up, if you show up in here next week, I will never come back, I will never work for the AWA again. <laughs> as soon as he walks off camera, Vern Gagne is like, what are you doing, David? What in the world are you doing? David knew. David knew Hogan was going. Vern didn't know yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's why I went out and cut that particular promo. Um, but, uh, you know, it, what happened was, you know, Vince got in touch with David the same way he did Hogan. He said, when I tell you to quit, you're going to quit. He was making them all the promises. You're going to make more money than you've ever seen in your life. You're going to be making six figures. You're going to be set for life. You're never going to have to worry about money again. And uh, sure enough, Vince called in the morning. He knew there was a TV taping going on. and said, David, this is the day you quit. And uh, you know, David did did what Vince asked him and went in. Vern was unhappy with it. And, uh, you know, that, that was that. He, he left Minnesota for New York. And was there, you know, ever any, like, there was no sort of, like, reconnecting with him and Vern? It was pretty much what was done was done uh, with these guys? I mean, as far as even later years, when, when David kind of uh, went from the limelight? Uh, no, no, no real resolution. It was just kind of, it's done, it's over, put it over your shoulder sort of thing? Yeah, no real resolution. And, and, and really, when he left WWF, you know, there, there weren't a lot of people, you know, calling to check up on him and stuff like that. And, you know, there was a... You know, he, he really pretty pretty much left it behind, and um, you know, for, you know, there were there were guys that uh, you know, it's it's just neat because I've been able to help him reconnect with a few people that he hasn't been in touch with in years, and um, you know, people who still you know greatly admire him and miss him, and like you know, hey, how's he doing, and this and that, and uh, but as far as I know, there there was no reconciliation with her. Now, aside from the person that you cannot name, who's uh, handling the forward, we're gonna we, we we firmly established that. Can you tell us some of the people that you were able to uh, talk with uh, who were proved to be such great sources of information in regards to uh, getting you know, outside of what David was telling you, as far as kind of getting that whole three hundred and sixty of, of of David's life and career post wrestling, and of course in his many years in the pro wrestling world. Uh, a lot of them are names that people aren't going to know. Uh, like I said, I got to talk to a couple of different bail bondsmen that he had worked with uh, back up in the Northeast. Uh, I got to talk to a number of his different students. Uh, I got to talk to Carmine Despirito. He used to be the editor of the Wrestling Eye oh, yeah. uh, with one of David's students and, and worked with him and, and traveled with him a little bit. Uh, I talked to David Sontag, uh, part of the, who was part of the Power Twins. Um, any movie fans might remember he and his brother, they're identical twins. They were the, the two goons that worked for Andy Garcia in Ocean's 11 and Ocean's 12. Uh, but he had some great stories. There's another guy named Mike Sundance, another guy named Brian Fisher. 
Um, I did get uh, Kenny Casanova, a friend of mine, and he's just finished up Bruce Beefcake's autobiography. And uh, Beefcake sent us a story for the book. Um, talked to Eddie Mansfield a couple of times. He used to be one of David's tag team partners and, and got a few stories from him as well. So, um, you know, so some different people, you know, some names we might not necessarily be familiar with, but um, everyone had fantastic stories and, and, and just, just didn't say enough nice things about him. And, um, I, I wish I could tell you, but, you know, until, until that forward hits my email box, I'm, I'm going to keep that one close to the vest. As, as okay, as okay. As I'm not, I, hey, no harm done, no harm done. <laughs> <laughs> I want you, know, you talked about Carmen the Spirito, and you you bring up Wrestling Eye. I, what I can remember too, because I did buy the Wrestling Eye along with uh, the you know your after magazines of the day. And what I can remember was seeing a lot of coverage of of, of David Schultz when he was working in the East Coast, uh, working for companies like NWF, and then uh, eventually hooking up a little bit closer uh, up to the Savolis and stuff. So again, David had a little bit of a life, but it became a little more regional. But then at the same time, when you leave. McMahon, especially at that point in, in the career, and I, you know, he I evidently saw the writing on the wall. It was the narrowing of the territories. Companies were trying to pop up. It was really just uh, almost a depressing state of professional wrestling at that point. But he did manage to, to maintain somewhat of a pro wrestling grip there in those post, uh, you know, WWF Stossel years. He did, yeah. He he um he kind of kind of did a little bit of both. He was he was starting the bounty hunting as he was tailing off with the wrestling. Um, he, he actually did some training classes and, and trained a number of different guys. Um, it's a shame that some of these guys didn't really get a better break than they did, you know, because there were some very good wrestlers. But um, it's very likely the fact that they had been trained by Dr. D. David Schultz might have been a hindrance for them working for for a larger company than they did. Um, yeah, he was you know he he was sought after right away. I mean. You know, having slapped John Stossel on national television, that made him, you know, the eyes of a lot of fans and, you know, certainly the magazines hyped it up, the most dangerous man in professional wrestling, you know, what's Dr. D going to do next? You know, he's not afraid to hit John Stossel, you know, what's he going to do when, when, he, when he comes to town and he gets his hands on someone else? So, um, and like I said, he wrestled some, you know, absolutely the toughest guys in the business, you know, that, that run he had after WWF is just one one after another, some of the biggest names and some of the absolutely legit toughest men, uh, you know, to ever step in the ring with, you know, with anyone. So, um, and there's some bloody, bloody photos, particularly of him and Abdullah the Butcher, but also, you know, one of the few fights he had with Johnny Rides, um, you know, double juice and, and just blood all over the ring. I mean, they, he, he didn't hold anything back and, um, and that those guys had some you know, some classic battles. It's, it, it's a shame it was just a regional thing because that's that's some stuff I would certainly love to see myself. I want to get back to uh, interviewing uh, David uh, for it. You know, in, in, in some books and in, in, in some t- for interviews with some former wrestlers, sometimes it's still, I guess, embedded in their minds uh, the whole kayfabe thing of protecting the business. And of course, no better example is David for defending the business. But was it easy for him to, to get the, 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 the training wheels off of the with the in regards to kayfabe? Was it pretty much straight talk, direct, is what you said about the man? It, it was very much straight talk. He was he, he didn't want to you know he didn't want to be phony about anything with this particular book. He wanted to tell the real story to show that he's the real deal. Uh, you know he is one of the toughest toughest men to ever be in the ring. Uh, he was trained legitimately as a shooter by Herb Welch. You know Herb taught him to shoot, then he went back and started from day one and taught him how to be a professional wrestler. Um, and he, he really didn't have any problem whatsoever. You know with with, with with any of that, and um, which is interesting because he was, you I mean, obviously he's, he's the martyr for defending KFA back in the 1980s. Um, one of the great letters, one of my favorite things in the book, is a letter that Mr. Saito wrote to him, um, you know, basically expressing his appreciation for what David did in New York and how he did the right thing. Um, I don't think there was a man in that locker room, including Vince McMahon, who didn't think he did the right thing that night, you know, when he hit John Stossel, and I think that was. I was obviously the intent the entire time was for him to send the message, you know, you know, come sniffing around here, you know, you know, come messing with our, you know, you know, as he puts it, this is my livelihood. This puts food on the table for my wife and my daughter, you know, I'm, you know, you were coming after my livelihood by saying that this is fake. And, um, he was taught from day one with her, if you protect the business and he protected the business the entire time he was in it. Um, I think right up until the time he finished wrestling and, and, and left for dining hunting for good. Um, but as, you know, now as far as as far as been in, or as far as you know anything like that, now it was uh, it was pretty much straight talk. He's a straight shooter. Um, 
very honest and straightforward with you. It was always interesting when I got some sort of a crazy story from somebody to go back and ask them. It's like, yeah, that's pretty much how it went down. <laughs> and, uh, you know, some, some, of them were, some of them were pretty crazy, but some of the memories. And, um, and he was, he was, his, I don't know, he, 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 will, he will tell you the toughest man who ever lived was, was Herb Welch, and, and nobody was tougher than him. But uh, David certainly didn't cut his students any slack. I was talking to Brian Fisher just the other night, and he was telling me the story about, this one particular guy who came to class, and if this guy showed up to class, David had one goal. He wanted to make him throw up. <laughs> and uh, David knew just the right combination of drills to get him out the door, puke him his guts out as quickly as possible. And, you know, what David say to go over and go, there you go, there, 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 you know, and, and just, just, just kind of give him what for. Um, and David shares some great stories. He's got a great sense of humor. Um, he, he's a very, very funny guy. And, you know, some you know, some of the ribs that he pulled, some of the practical jokes, and uh, yeah, pulled some of them from from you know Dynamite Kids book, and you know, obviously they, he never denied any of them. And um, I, I say one thing I've learned from from another folk, from, from a couple of different people that have traveled with him is you don't fall asleep in the car with David uh, because he will make you sorry. Uh, <laughs> oh, uh, we, were, we were actually I was, I was kind of relieved we were going to take a, a road trip together we are going to head go up to Connecticut kind of to his old stomping grounds and I'm notorious for falling asleep in the car so I know he would have had a lot of fun with me in that particular regard but um, I have heard stories about you know him slamming on the brakes and screaming to wake people up and things like that um, just just having a good time you know with, with people trying to doze off in the car well well honestly in the stampede territory yeah you have him and in Dynamite Kid now God, that's got to be like just, you know, uh, out of the frying pan into the fire as far as two guys who can really rib from from different sides of the square. I mean, you know, you, we've read so many stories through the years of Dynamite Kid and just how downright brutal some of his ribs could be. Uh, how contrasting that with, with what David did, were they very, was it a similar thing with David or did he have, have some sort of line that he wouldn't cross in regards to ribs? I, I, I He didn't, he didn't. Pulled, I don't think he pulled near, and no, I don't think anybody pulled as, as many as Dynamite necessarily in that territory, but um, pulling ribs was just something you did because you had an eight-hour drive from one part of Canada to another across snow and ice, um, and you wanted to keep yourself from getting bored. And uh, yeah, there, there were there were a lot of things he pulled, you know, like like you know flipping you know some some chewing tobacco into a sandwich, you know, when somebody wasn't looking. Um, there, there's some great stories about some cookies that he took into the locker room at Stampede that made everyone very, very ill. And, uh, denying all that, you know, no, these, my wife made these cookies. Are you saying my wife might poison these cookies? Because now my wife would not do that to you guys. And, uh, of course, David made sure there were some good cookies on top. Those are the ones he grabbed, you know, so that everybody knew well, the rest of the cookies in the bag were safe. But, um, Jeez. Yeah, he, he was he, he he wasn't afraid afraid to get down and dirty and, and to, to you know to, to cross a few lines and um, most guys were I think you know pretty conscientious about not doing it back with him because they were afraid of the backlash and uh, there's one particular story he told where you know he he realized something had been done to him and he wanted someone you know tells the guys in the car somebody needs to fess up right now tell me tell me what's going on. You know, I'm not going to be mad, but I want you to tell me. And of course, they all kept their mouths shut because they knew as soon as, you know, David was okay and fine, he was going to come right back for them. So, I these are just a mere sample. We're we're merely scratching the surface on this on this book that you're putting together. You almost have completed, and you're working in the final stages of uh, getting this thing ready and prepared uh, for for release. Is do you see what do you see as far as a timetable again for uh, getting this this book out and a timetable that you would like to see as far as getting it getting it released? I'm hoping we'll have it ready to release in in mid January. Um, like I said, we've just got a little bit of cleaning up to do and a few little odds and ends we need to get put together. Um, I'm hoping that's going to be done here in December, and I can get a final copy into his hands so he can he can actually flip through it, give me his thumbs up, and uh, as soon as that's done, we're going to go to press on it, and uh, um, hopefully, I'm you know we can arrange something where we can get some signed copies out, some some early releases for people as well. But uh, that's all still to be discussed between me and him. And uh, you know, as I get that info, I'll be posting that on the website. Um, I'll be posting it to Facebook and Twitter and everywhere, and uh, we'll, we'll let everybody know when the book's available.
Oh, absolutely. Um, we'll, we'll definitely uh, we'll have to cross uh, paths again uh, to discuss uh, the book a little bit more when it uh, gets released. Then we can talk about the person who did the foreword. Okay, we're going to put that thing to bed right now. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you know, while we have the chance, well, we talked about uh, earlier on in the program, John Cosper, we talked about season's beatings, the uh, Christmas wishes from the golden age of wrestling. But not only that, on your website, Eat Sleep Wrestle, you have other books uh, that are up for sale. And now, with it being the holiday season, uh, I think it's a good time if any, to uh, get some more plugs in on these books. And these are books that I have uh, had a chance to uh, read as well and I've had talks with you in the past. But let's uh, talk, you know, give a little rundown, a little taste, a little flavor of what a fan, wrestling fan or someone who's buying for a wrestling fan who has an appreciation for the old school about some of the things that you have, some of the books that you have uh, in your uh, on your website that are up for sale for uh, f- you know for that potential prof- you know, professional wrestling fan out there, or if somebody's listening who has a fan, let's talk a little bit about what you have for an, in the offering at your website. Sure, no problem. Uh, my first book is, is actually still probably the best seller. It's called Bluegrass Brawlers: The Story of Professional Wrestling in Louisville. Um, this book covers Louisville, Kentucky pro wrestling, going all the way back to 1880. Um, the 1880s, there's some stories about some circus wrestlers, some of the barnstormers. Uh, the great William C. Muldoon is considered to be the first true professional wrestling champion. Uh, came to town in 1882. Um, 1913, Ed Strangler Lewis got his name in Louisville. We told that story. Um, we told the story about the Allen Athletic Club that I discussed in more depth in another book. Uh, this was the golden age of wrestling that's really been kind of lost to history. and It's the era of uh, the Black Panther, Jim Mitchell, uh, Luthez, Wild Bill Longson, Buddy Rogers, Mildred Burke, May Young, uh, some of the greatest stars of that particular area. I mean, all the great stars really came through Louisville. Uh, we talk about Memphis wrestling and how you know Jerry Jarrett opened up Louisville in 1970. Uh, some of the interesting stories that came out of that particular era. Um, and then, of course, Ohio Valley wrestling, which was started by Danny Davis in the mid-90s and became WWE's um, training territory. Um, what was fantastic about that particular area, this is, I mean, just 16, 17 years ago, um, you could have gone actually to Jeffersonville, Indiana, which is right across the river from Louisville, on a Wednesday night, going to a free TV taping and seeing John Cena, Brock Lesnar, Randy Orton, uh, and a number of other huge stars, Batista, all on one show, um, perhaps, you know, a WrestleMania-type lineup now for free. Mm. Um, so it kind of tells that entire history of, you know, a city and, you know, the wrestling that's been here throughout over 130 years. Um, it's really kind of an overview and, and uh, you know, some fantastic stories, you know, from, from just about every era. Um, Louisville's Greatest Show, the story of the Island Athletic Club. Um, that's the other Louisville book that I wrote. This is one that I wanted to write going back to when I was working on Bluegrass Brawlers. Um, the era that really fascinated me was that particular golden age era from 1935 to 1957 uh, when a man named Haywood Allen, who had been a referee and had been a promoter, uh, decided to go into business for himself, open his own promotion, and really establish the Tuesday night tradition that continued into you know, the 70s when Jerry Jarrett opened up Louisville on Tuesday night in the gardens. Um, and it really goes in depth. I go, you know, year by year, you know, from 1935 through 1957 when the promotion closed. Uh, talk about what happened during those particular years, who the stars were. Um, there's almost two dozen biographies as well interspersed with that. We talk about the Black Panther, Jim Mitchell. Uh, we talk about another one of my favorites, uh, a lady by the name of Elvira Snodgrass. Uh, we talk about a lot of local stars. Uh, talk about some national names. Uh, Freddie Blassie was very big in Louisville. Wild Bill Longston. Uh, we Willie Davis came to Louisville. He actually was became the promoter in Louisville after you know, the Allen Club closed in '57. Uh, in a number of different aspects, and, and ended up settling and staying in Louisville. Uh, really fascinating character. A really funny story in the book involving him and an incident that happened in the ice hockey game. That, uh, in reflection, he realized I probably should have stayed out of when he tried to break up a fight. Uh, but those are my two Louisville books, Bluegrass Brawlers and Louisville's Greatest Show. Uh, some of the other books I've got out, I wrote a book called Eat, Sleep, Wrestle. Uh, this is for folks that are interested in knowing a little bit more about the independent wrestling scene. Um, independent wrestling today is, is not what it was five or ten years ago. Um, it's really growing. It's really thriving. There's a lot of really talented people out there. And um, What Eat, Sleep, Wrestle was was really just a chance to kind of introduce you know people who might not be interested in what's going on beyond Raw and SmackDown, um, who these men and women are that are out there busting their tails that, you know, you know, working for five, ten dollars a night, you know, working in a roller rink or working in a warehouse or a high school gymnasium, um, taking their bumps, taking, you know, bruises and everything like that. 
um, simply for the love of the sport because it's what they want to do. It's their passion and, and really kind of getting into the heads of, the, of these independent stars. And um, what's really cool is I put the book out, you know, three years ago now in 2014. Uh, the girl on the cover who then was known as Crazy Mary Dobson, she's now Sarah Logan, uh, who just made her debut a couple weeks ago on SmackDown. Um, and uh, which is really excited for her, and, and uh, it's really neat to see you know, just the continued evolution of her career and, and see where some of these other people are as well. Um, it's just kind of a snapshot of independent wrestling going back to you know the summer of 2014 when, when I got together and, and got, got to meet all these different wrestlers for the first time. Um, another book I got out is uh, Lord Carlton, Wrestler, Artist, My Father. Uh, I kind of wrote that particular book with uh, the daughter of Lord Leslie Carlton, um, he was uh, another one of the Golden Age stars. He's kind of been lost to history. Um, very similar story to Gorgeous George, and he was just another brunette. You know, well, he was not. He was actually a blonde. He didn't have to dye his hair, but just another guy in black trunks. And you know, he had kind of worked his way up as, as a, a wrestler by the name of Tug Carlson, um, and really gone as far as he could, and ended up uh, borrowing the act that Lord Lansdowne originally perfected, uh, just as Gorgeous George did. He became Lord Leslie Carlton, uh, became one of the top heels in California and, and out west. And uh, it's a story of his wrestling career, uh, but it's also the story of his life. And um, some of the stuff that happened to him outside of the wrestling world is is even more bizarre and more soap operas than wrestling. Um, Dysfunctional this, this would probably be a good case as far as exactly. uh, the relationships yeah. in his life with with his uh, the uh, his, his the women in his life. Let's just say because this was a heck of a ride that uh, got a little bit more a little bit faster and a little bit bumpier as we got out of the pro wrestling aspect from a guy that also had a lot of other out of the ring talents too. He did. As, as a child, he was, he was the youngest person ever offered, you know, a scholarship to the San Francisco School of Art when someone just randomly came to the door looking for donations for, for the, the art school. Um, he's a very talented artist. We can highlight a lot of his artwork within the book. Um, and as you said, you know, he had you know, his, his, the first wife was you know, tragically murdered by their son, and his second wife was constantly trying to murder him. Um, so it's, it's a really it's a fascinating story. It, 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 it's a funny story, and... Uh, um, it's a really neat memoir, but by his daughter as well. Now, before we go today, John, uh, aside from the Schultz book, you did uh, mention a name uh, that, of course, a little more on the indie side of things, but, you know, a wrestling fan, uh, the modern fan would probably remember. Uh, we're talking about, you mentioned Madman Pondo. Is this a project? Uh, how far in? And what's what's going on with this book? We're, we're actually uh, maybe not quite halfway to, to where I'd like to be with that, but I, I started talking to Pondo about the same time that... Uh, um, that David and I were, were getting going on his book and started collecting some stories. Um, I got to know Pondo when I was working on Eat, Sleep, Wrestle, and, and uh, he, he lives here locally and has gone to a lot of shows he's been on, got a lot of shows he's promoted. Um, well, the thing that kind of connects you know, David and Pondo and, and uh, another guy whose book I wrote, Kenny Starmaker Bowen, um, these are all great storytellers. David's a great storyteller. Um, Kenny's a great storyteller, and, and probably maybe you know two thirds of what he tells is true, and one third fiction. And you got to figure that out on your own. Um, Madman Pondo is—he's one of the greatest storytellers. Um, and he tells the most outrageous stories you've ever heard, the most outrageous things, and they're all 100% true. Um, just as an example, the other night he posts on Facebook, you know, this little thing. It says, "I'm going to see David Blaine tonight." Last time I saw David Blaine was in 2003. He was in a glass box suspended over the city of London, you know, for 44 days with no food or water. I went out, found the biggest hamburger I could, got the biggest soda I could. I went down to where David Blaine was. I yelled until I got his attention, and I ate the burger right in front of him. Photos below. And sure enough, he's got photos of himself sitting there eating a burger in front of poor David Blaine. Not poor David Blaine. He's a millionaire, but whatever. You know, eating a hamburger in front of a guy who's, you know, not eating for 44 days. Um, (laughs) But this is Pondo's entire life is just one thing after him. He was a kid who uh, loved wrestling and and wanted to be a wrestler. He knew he didn't have the look or the physique or the athleticism to be a WWF star. Um, He discovered deathmatch wrestling, realized I can make myself a niche for this. Uh, There was no deathmatch wrestling at the time he came along, but he hooked up with Ian Rotten and IWA Mid-South and became, you know, obviously one of the great, you know, know, if you, you for those who love deathmatch wrestling, he's definitely one of the pioneers and forefathers and one of the great heroes and legends of that uh, particular genre of wrestling. But, I mean, just some incredible stories, the people he's run into, the people he's friends with. And, 
Um, you know, you're hanging out backstage and, you know, with, with Marilyn Manson, you know, at concerts and um, speaking at the Juggalo March in Washington at the same place where Forrest Gump spoke, you know, at the Lincoln Memorial. Um, Pondo's just, an, he's led an incredible life. He really got to do some amazing things. And, you know, for, for a guy who knew he was never going to be, you know, with the WWF, we knew he was never going to have a WrestleMania moment. Um, he's gotten to live his dream. He's gotten to do some amazing things. And he's still going. You know, he's still wrestling. He's still traveling. Um, he's still running the Girl Fight promotion, which which has really been great and opened up a lot of doors for a lot of the ladies and, uh, you know, capitalized as well on the, the researched interest in, in the women's wrestling lately, too. So um, I'm excited about that being able to bring his story about and to introduce him to more people. And um, so this isn't just a guy, you know, who, you know, got staples in his head and took a body slam through a bed of sharpened number two pencils. This is a guy who's, um, who's funny, who's intelligent, uh, who's done some crazy, crazy, ridiculous things and has some amazing stories to share. Well, John, it looks like we've shared a lot of stories, much to the, so much, actually, that uh, our time is here. It, it, we went the full Broadway once again. It's never too difficult once we get going on uh, various wrestling topics and some of the books that you've put together. Uh, John, it's always a pleasure to have you on Wrestling Memories, my friend. Thank you so much for uh, joining us here this week. Glenn, thank you very much for the invite, and uh, wish, you, wish you happy holidays, Merry Christmas, and uh, hey, thank, thanks for, for allowing me to come on and share. Happy holidays and Merry Christmas to you. For John Cosper, I'm Glenn Broggett. So long for now. You've been listening to Rasslin' Memories.